Good morning. Uh, Lori's going to be leading actually a small group starting next Sunday morning from 8.30 to 9 o'clock in Theater One, just right here. So you can get to church early, which I, I know was kind of your dream growing up. It wasn't to be a football star uh, or anything like that, it was to go to church early. Um, so Theater One starting next week at 8.30. Lori's going to be leading a small group there. And uh, Landon, if you got Rich and Kristen singing, I'd love for you to cut it and email it to everybody in the church this week, because that would be fun. Um, it's great to have you with us, that you braved the snow. Um, it's kind of a neat thing, and, and I'm excited just about what we can learn this morning. Uh, there's three, I think, main principles that we're going to touch on, and I think they're solid, and they apply to everybody, and Dr. Phil's got nothing on this. So uh, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father God, we just thank you for this morning, and we're reminded of uh, your goodness expressed in beauty, uh, just the snow and the serenity. Um, we just are glad to live where we live, where there's seasons, where there's reminders that you're behind uh, a good creation. And I just pray this morning that we would be challenged, that we would walk out of here uh, feeling like there's a little more that we can do in pursuing you uh, and trying to celebrate this, this gift of life that you've given us. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. The light's dimmed. Um, so what we're looking at this morning is we're finishing a series we did. We started with the prophet who misunderstood God, and then we went to uh, uh, the king who couldn't see God. Last week was the son who disappointed God. And today is the woman who laughed at God. And I, I want to just exercise a little um, kind of, uh, I don't know, I'm just going to rename the sermon. Um, so instead of calling it the, the woman who laughed at God, we're going to call it the couple who laughed at God. And that way no one will accuse me of being gen gender insensitive. Uh, and it also helped me a little with the sermon too. So let's just rename it. Um, you can, don't have to cross it out, but. The couple who laughed at God. And it's the story of Abraham and Sarah. Now, we got to get the context here because as you're going to see as we go through the whole sermon, that the big picture, like in so many things in life, the big picture is what allows us to kind of see everything else in its proper light. And so when we go to Genesis, we kind of get a quick shot. Uh, the first 11 chapters covers just a, a dizzying uh, amount of information in terms of the beginning uh, of the world, God's plan for the world, and kind of where it goes from there. And so if you remember, God creates the world, and his plan and his, his desire is to basically uh, grow his community. Uh, there's the Holy Spirit, and there was Jesus, and there's God, and, and there's relationship, and there's unity. And out of that love and out of that connection, God creates and he's growing a family in a sense. He's creating these humans, and there's going to be relationship, and there's going to be joy and harmony and all of it. And then sin enters. And what sin basically does is it breaks relationship. Uh, there's no more basic definition for me about what sin is. Sin breaks a relationship with God, breaks a relationship with someone else, or breaks a relationship with yourself. And so I'll, you know, I can illustrate it in any way, whether it's gossip, it breaks relationship here. Um, even fuzzy things like Christians and drinking. 
you know, can you drink, can you not drink? I, I just come back to, does it break relationship? Is there someone there that it's going to break a relationship with? Or are you going to drink too much to where now you're uh, going and breaking um, the relationship with yourself, uh, commitments you've made? Or you're going to do things and say things that you ought not do and you, again, break relationship with God? Um, when we break relationship, we're engaging in, in things and in conduct uh, that's not right. It's not building up. It's not edifying. It's not good. Okay? And so in the New Testament, it says anything that's not in faith is sin. Well, what is faith? Faith is that connection with God. It is, in a sense, the thing that holds us in relationship. So anything that we can't do in faith, anything that we can't do believing that our relationship with God is okay, that he's pleased with this, we ought not do. It's sin. It breaks relationship. And so Adam and Eve broke relationship with God. They, they did what he said don't do. You got the whole garden here, one tree, don't eat of the fruit of this tree. And they started thinking, you know what, we've got our own agenda here, our own story, and it's different from God's story. In our story, we want to eat from this tree because curiosity is killing us. We want to, to benefit in whatever ways it's going to benefit us. And we're going to go kind of on our own path here and begin to create our own story. And things go wrong there. Sin enters the world. And it's just one series of bad things after another from there. It's brother killing brother and God casting uh, Adam and Eve out of the garden. And then people getting so far from God just so distant and so destructive in trying to, to live out what I would call Darwinistic lifestyle, which is survival of the fittest. Uh, I got to look out for number one. I'm going to pursue my own story. It doesn't matter what your story is or God's story. I'm going to pursue my own story in that agenda. It gets so bad that God basically is going to wipe everybody out and start over. And so you remember the story of Noah and Noah builds the ark, and God says, with this one family, I'm going to pres preserve the story that I wanted to have in the first place, the, the beginning, the narrative. And I'm going to preserve this one family, and we're going to try and hit the reset button, and maybe, just maybe, uh, we'll get this family, this with God relationship that I'd always dreamed of, always wanted, okay? And so God wipes out mankind, and he starts over. And you remember when they come off the ark, there's a rainbow in the sky, and the rainbow is a promise. And the promise was, I'm never going to resort to this again. I'm never going to wipe out everybody again. We're going to do something different from here on out uh, as a part of my narrative, as a part of my story, as a part of my plan. And so in chapter 12... We see Abraham, who's Abram at the time, and, and later is named Abraham. His wife, Sarai, is, is renamed Sarah. Um, but Abraham and Sarah enter the story in chapter 12 uh, of Genesis. And what God is doing is he's now going to bring about a part of this plan where through one couple again, just like Adam and Eve, he is going to begin to build a people for himself. And the basis of that relationship is going to be faith. One of the first things we hear about Abraham is uh, he believed God, and it was, he believed God, he trusted in God, he had faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Okay, God finally says, here's a guy, we're going to enter into a relationship, he's going to trust me, and I'm going to build a nation through him as countless as the stars, and this is now my plan, because my whole goal from the beginning was to have a with God relationship, to have a relationship. And that word with is such a, an ingrained part of the word relationship, isn't it? Separation is, is, is the opposite of relationship. With, it's God wants a relationship with people. And so what's really fascinating here is what he does in, in kicking off this part of the plan. As he takes Abraham, there's a map um, we can show you here. He takes Abraham, and I've circled it down there in the bottom right, from Ur, and he's going to move him out of here. Now this is kind of where the, the Tigris and the Euphrates River are there, is modern day Iraq and kind of that whole area and up above it. Um, that's where supposedly the Garden of Eden was. That's supposedly where the cradle of civilization was. And even archaeologists today will tell us that the most ancient of ancient, where languages began, etc., is all in that little cradle area between the, the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And God is going to take Abraham, and he's going to move him north. And so he goes from south to north, up along the Euphrates, to Haran, up there in the north, and he's on his way to Canaan, which is over there in Israel. And why does he not cut across to the left? Well, um, it's not a good idea to go through the the desert unless you have a jeep, right? Uh, So he gets to Haran, and he ends up waiting there for a while, and then eventually he's going to drop down into what is is now modern-day Israel, and this is the promised land. And so let's just leave this up for a minute. God is going to start something new, and he's going to do it through Abraham and Sarah, and he, he begins and he gives Abraham a promise, you're going to have a son and I'm going to build nations through you. And a part of this whole thing is relocating Abraham from down there in the cradle of civilization all the way over here to what is now the land of Israel. Why is that important? Why is that important? And this is our, we're, we're getting into kind of the first lesson we need to learn today. And why it's important is because over where Abraham was, you didn't really need God in the same way you're going to need God over in Israel. Why is that? Well, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, uh, snow melt off, they're constant agriculture. You don't run into drought. You don't run into famine over there the way you're going to run into it over in Israel. You can plan for things. You can take matters into your own hands. The word Mesopotamia shows up there and that was actually named by the Greeks when they came through with Alexander the Great. And it's the Greek word uh, uh, mesos. And if I remember right, I don't remember right. Um, well, mesos is between, and potamos is the other Greek word, is rivers. So it's mesos, potamos, between the rivers. And those are the Greek words from when Alexander the Great came through there. And it's really between the rivers, that whole area there, it's lush. It's lush. Over in Israel, where Abraham is going, he's going to live a nomadic lifestyle, and one of the very first things he has to do is cut all the way down into Egypt because of a drought and a famine in the land. Now, why is God doing this? Couldn't he have just said to Abraham there in Ur, uh, have a son, and through this son, I'm going to build a nation that's going to depend on me? Um, he chose not to do that, and I think it's, it's pretty clear what the reason is. 
as you follow the, the descendants of Abraham and they go into uh, Egypt and then obviously Moses leads them out and then there's the covenant and the contract between God and his people Israel, he basically gives them conditions. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you stay in relationship with me and depend on me, I will bless you and there will be crops and there will be rain and it will go well for you. But if you don't walk by faith, if you don't stay with me, if you don't depend on me, if you break that relationship, then now I've got recourse. There's going to be drought and there's going to be famine and I will curse the land. As a father would discipline a child, I'm now going to withhold that comfort and that security that you've you've kind of grown accustomed to so that it forces you back into that relationship with me. And so God's got a plan that's bigger than just Abraham. It's a plan for a whole nation over a period of time to live in dependence on him. And what God wants to do is take Abraham, this man of faith, and get him over into a land where he can live in dependence on God. And so... The first thing today, and it's the big picture context of this whole story, is God is looking for people that are going to depend on him. It's what faith literally means. Faith in in the American language is a little bit odd. It's a lot better sometimes to just say trust. The word trust connotes a lot more of this idea of I am depending on, I am leaning on, I am vested in something else other than myself. And God is looking for that. So it says in the New Testament, the righteous will walk by faith. We don't always know what's coming. We don't always have the abilities to control our own life. That is a position that God is okay with us being in. He's okay with us not having all the answers or all the resources. Why? Because when we lack, it actually helps us look to God for our provision. It's no accident that Jesus begins the Lord's prayer with, give us our daily bread. Give us what we need. Let us look to you, God, and give us the things that we're depending on having in order to be sustained and to live. And so we have to kind of get this idea that what God is about, his story This grand narrative is us as a people living in dependence on him. I wrote a paper. I had a a class. It was a three-semester class. And the whole class for three semesters is when I was getting my master's in philosophy was on the problem of evil. So a whole three-unit class for a whole semester on one question, the problem of evil. And so uh, the professor wasn't exactly my favorite. He was as big a nitpicker as, as you'll ever find. And so we walk into class, it's a two-hour, like you're actually in class for two hours at a time. And we walk in, and on the board, the, the teacher has written this uh, in big letters. The, uh, the problem of evil is the most formidable argument against theism, uh, against theism, period. The problem of evil is the most formidable argument against theism, period. And he spent two hours dissecting that sentence. I mean, he took, uh, what, what do we mean by problem? What do we mean by evil? What do we mean by argument? What do we mean by theism? And it just drove me crazy. I, you know, have you ever been sitting there? Maybe you get this in church. 
hopefully not today, but where you're like screaming in your head, like outside you're, you're just sitting there calm and still, and inside your head you've just got the screams, you're like, I got to get out of here. Uh, well, that's the way I experienced that class for a whole semester. But I had to write a paper on the problem of evil, the question of evil, why does God allow bad things to happen to people? Why does God allow bad in this world altogether? Why doesn't he just do away with it and bring on utopia, bring on heaven on earth right now, right? And I started thinking about it, and I'm like, well, if God stepped in on this, well, then this person's going to say, well, gee, God, you stepped in on this, and that's not fair. What about this? And you start this infinite, like, you know, domino thing, right? And pretty soon, if, you know, God either has to go all the way or nothing, I mean, he's either got to wipe out everything bad or he's got to stop somewhere. And the minute he stops, it looks like he's being capricious, doesn't it? Why would you pick that line, God? That's not fair. It's arbitrary. It's capricious. And so God allows evil and bad and and wrong things in this world now. And he, he promises us and he offers himself to us to be here with us. And we have a future hope of someday going where there isn't the problems that are on this, this earth and in this world right now. But so there's this whole interesting thing set up. And I also kind of, in, the, in writing that paper, and I've carried it with me for ever since then, I really came to a strong conviction of, of this. And that's when, I've, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I get running, it's hard to stop and, and go to God. Have you, I mean, is it? Is it hard for you too, sometimes to live day to day in dependence on God? It's hard. And what I've found is when I don't need God is when I completely forget about God. If all of life was one big Disneyland, I would do a whole lot of playing. I would do very little praying. I mean, I'm convinced of that. It's the difficult times that drive me back to my knees, that force me to keep opening my Bible, that every once in a while get me to journal. It's the difficult times. And what God's in this awkward position of having to do is we're clamoring for him to remove the very thing that forces us towards him. You guys see that irony? And when we go to God, God, remove everything bad in my life. And God's up there, and from his perspective, he knows better than us. And he knows if I do that, that's, that's the last time I'm going to see you. You're going to be gone. And you don't even realize it. And so, I mean, God is in just this weird position of saying, in this day and age, in, in this scheme of things, in this part of the story, I can't remove everything bad. But in the middle of that, you can look to me. You can call out to me. You can depend on me. And in there, in that, that need, I will meet you and I will provide for you. But you have to start there. And I'm going to bless that and affirm that when you're coming towards me because then you're going to keep doing it more. But when you just run off and do it on your own and pursue your own story, I can't bless that because then you're never going to seek me. So the, the first part of this story is just this big picture. God has got his own, he's got his own narrative going. And he is calling out a people for himself and he wants that relationship. And a big part of that relationship is our dependence, our trust, our faith in him. And so with Abraham, as he's moving him out, and if you want to turn to Genesis, we'll pick up this part of the story. 
Genesis chapter 17. And it's the other unique thing. God puts this man Abraham from Ur where he's between the rivers, where the, the agriculture, where everything is kind of set. The trade routes are established. And he moves him to a land where he's going to have to depend on God. And here's the other thing God does. As he promises to Abraham, you're going to have a son, even though you're ridiculously old, and you're going to have a son even though your wife is past childbearing age. Now, why does God do that? God, I think, does that. I think it's pretty clear because this is going to be a child of a promise. This this isn't the building of a nation by human strength, human drive, human energy, human resources. This is God choosing to do something. As the author of a narrative, God is choosing, making a decision, and this is what's going on. So he promises to Abraham he's going to have a child, even though he's so old. In in, uh, chapter 17, verse 15, we'll just pick it up. And God also says to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, uh, you are no longer to call her Sarah. Your, her name will be Sarah. And I will bless her and I will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And so he's already tried to take matters into his own hands once. And so he's got a son by someone other than Sarah, a son that's not a part of the promise. This son is a part of human manipulation and striving and effort, not of faith, okay? And Abraham says, man, this whole idea of my wife who's 90 having a kid, that just wears me out. Why don't we just go with this program, God? Well, if only just Ishmael could be blessed. Uh, blessed. And God does bless Ishmael and make him the father of nations. But God's saying, you're missing the point here. And so Abraham laughs and says, this is crazy. And look at the way God responds in verse 19. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. And I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Abraham names Ishmael, if we go back just a little bit. Uh, He has this son, and he says his name shall be Ishmael, and he names him Ishmael. And what God is doing here is he's saying, you're going to have a son through Sarah. Abraham laughs. God says, why are you laughing? Uh, You will surely have a son through Sarah, and the name of that son will be, and here's the irony, the name Isaac means he laughs. And I think it's kind of ironic, God saying, you laugh, do you? Uh, you think that's funny? Uh, his name's going to be funny. Uh, you know, you laugh, his name is, he laughs, you know. Uh, it's kind of like when you say to someone, I don't believe you, and the person looks at you and goes, oh, really? Um, and God's saying, right now, I think that um, I can do what I say I'm going to do. Uh, I was going to show a clip, but it proved to be more than what a PG audience can handle. But uh, it's, it's a clip from this movie, Along Came Polly, and, and there's this guy playing basketball, and he's just like every shot, it's rain dance, you know. Um, 
let it rain, you know, and, and it's just bouncing off the top of the backboard or missing by five feet. And it's, this guy's talking this game and he just can't deliver, right? And sometimes when we laugh at God, we're, we're somehow implying that God talks a big game, but he can't deliver. And God says the name of the child will be Isaac. I'm going to deliver. It's not funny. <laughs> and so the story goes on. And uh, well, let me just stop. Here's the second point. First point is God's looking for a people that will be dependent upon him. Second point is, is God's story, what, what's going on on that broad level, his narrative, doesn't always make sense with our story and our narrative. Have you realized that in your life? What God's trying to do and what we would have done or what makes sense to us, those two things don't always jive. They don't always sync together. And that's kind of what we see here with this dialogue between God and and Abraham is they're not really gelling. And Abraham's having a hard time just letting go and getting on with God's program. And so we're going to watch a little bit of a video next week of an interview with Bono. And it's funny, Bono actually uh, quotes the Blackaby thing from his book, which is basically find out what God is doing and jump in and be a part of it. Right? You know, so be a part of what God is already blessing rather than always asking God to bless what you're doing. You follow God. Don't expect God to just follow you. Okay. And so we see kind of this point come up of God's doing something, and the sooner Abraham goes, okay, I need to get in line with what you're doing on that story, on that track, the better, um, that's kind of what we need to realize too. And so you're on your knees this week, or you're talking to people, you're, you're struggling with questions, you're looking at your life, and a lot of times it doesn't make sense. Or when you're praying to God, do something with my life, you, you're just... You don't understand why these circumstances would keep cropping up if God wants you to be some kind of Christian superstar, right? Um, but the funny thing is, is the people God uses, it's usually their experiences and their trials that make them fit for ministry. God never wastes a hurt. He never wastes a hurt. But so we're, we're always kind of wondering how in the world what's going on in our life is going to help us reach superstar status. And that's not what God's trying to do. He's not trying to build your story, and we all think we should reach superstar status, right? Uh, he's wanting you to submit to him, depend on him, and be a part of the bigger picture of what's going on. Uh, this has absolutely nothing to do with the text, and my friend Brandon will um, jump on me for it, but it's something I want to say. Uh, American culture, we really struggle with something, and I think it's, it's this. You know, we, we have our birthdays, and we get all these crazy, my daughter just had a birthday, all these crazy presents and attention, and it's all about you. Uh, and then you get the birthday cards from grandma, and they always have five bucks in them. Mine always did. My friends always had like 30 bucks. And, and what's really hard is we cater to youth in our, in our society. And then somewhere in my late 20s, I stopped getting the five bucks in my birthday card. And the little child of me, deep down inside, is still bitter about this, okay? I'm, I'm not getting all these things, it's all about Ken, it's all about Ken, and, and I, I miss that, and I want that, and I've got my own agenda, okay? 
And what we do with that is we kind of go to God and we expect that this kind of deficiency, we're all neurotic because, I mean, we just need to admit that life gets a lot easier when we, when we admit that. Um, what we do is we take that to God and we expect God to somehow now supply all this attention that we feel like we're, we're, we're lacking. And that becomes our agenda, our story. And it's so different from what God's trying to do. And God's trying to to look at us and say, don't you get it? As you join in with my story and you're dependent, I'm going to use you in significant ways that you can't imagine. They're, They're not rational to you. And so the sooner you put aside what you're trying to do, your own little agenda, your own little program, and the $5 from your grandma, and just let it go. Ken, let it go. Um... I mean, I st- do you guys do that? I get cards now, and it, it's ruined. Every time I see a Hallmark, I only have one thought. Yeah, I, got, I got to open it, and something, you know, something might fall out. And then nothing falls out, and I'm bitter. And some, some nice woman is writing me like a, a nice, sweet note, and I'm, and I'm bitter. It's, we're neurotic. Um, and the sooner we let go of our agenda to recapture our own fame, and importance and significance along the lines that we can imagine and we get onto God's program, the sooner God can start to use us in amazing ways, ways that are beyond what even, like Abraham could imagine, okay? So that's the second thing is our story doesn't always seem to make sense or jive with God's story. We got to let go of ours and we got to look at his and get on track with that. Let's look at what happens now in chapter 18. And three Men come and visit. There are three angels. It's, a, it's an odd passage, but basically three angels sent from God, messengers from God, come and visit Abraham. And he takes them in, and they're having this conversation. And, uh, and then in verse 7, so chapter 18, verse 7. Then he ran to, to the herd, and he selected, he's, he's being very hospitable here, selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant, and that servant hurried to prepare it. And then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared, and he set these before those men. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. And here's the question they ask, where is your wife, Sarah? There in the tent, he says. Then the Lord says, so you, un- you begin to understand these are messengers from the Lord. They know about his wife, Sarah. They know her by name. And then it goes into this. And then the Lord says, I will, resu- I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. It's an amazing promise. Um, I've got a picture here to help you understand just why Sarah would laugh. Okay? I mean, get it. (laughs) Who said that? Um, This woman is well into her 90s. And listen to what she hears, and maybe you'll understand her, her laughing. You could take it off. But you got to get the con- you got to get in the story here. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. And so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? And so now the Lord, these you know, understands what's going on in her mind. You know, she's kind of having this conversation. She's laughing to herself. And he says to uh, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. Uh, but God, in this amazing thing, but God said, yes, he did. Um, I think that's the way it works with the Holy Spirit sometimes. Our conscience convicts us, you know, and we get ourselves into all sorts of trouble, and we kind of like, well, I, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that, or, gee, I didn't see that coming. And it's funny because uh, the Holy Spirit isn't an extreme extrovert, I've learned, you know, that just yaps, 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 you know. Um, the Holy Spirit's an incredible, reserved, what I would call introvert. Only says what needs to be say, uh, said, and then stops. And it's kind of funny, just the way God says, all he says is, yes, you did. And I think sometimes we try and do that with God. Gee, God, I didn't know. It's not my fault. What about him, you know? Um, this person said this, this person did that. And God just kind of cuts in and says, no, you knew. I said something. You heard me. You just, you know, you just didn't listen. But it's amazing kind of what happens here. And so Sarah laughs at God. And here's the third point, and I think it's one that we've just got to hear. You got to hear this. It's never too late for God to use you. It's never too late for God to use you. Sarah laughs. Why? Because she thinks it's too late. I've missed the curve. I'm, there's no way. I can't be a part of that plan. I can't be significant in that way. It's, it's too late. It's, I only went surfing one time, and uh, I did a lot of swimming. <laughs> um, and what I learned is when the wave's coming, you're supposed to start swimming, and you swim, and you swim, and you paddle. And then the wave kind of, I, I mean, what happens for me is you see the wave go by, and there's this, po- there's, this, there's this point when you know you've missed the wave. I mean, if you've ever been out in the ocean and you've ever tried to surf, you know what I'm talking about. There's a distinct point when you know that, that it's too late. No amount of paddling is going to get you on that wave. You've missed it. And a lot of you feel like that in life right now. I missed going to college. It's too late. I'm already too old. I've missed the whole getting married curve. Or my first marriage didn't work out. Or second, I've missed a curve here. And now I'm in this like, um, this other category of life that God can't do anything with. Or I'm retired. Or I'm getting older. God can't use me. It's too late. All the significant things have already passed me by. Ship has sailed. And so it's, it's amazing to me, you know, we worship youth in America. The average age of a model, I was looking online, is between the ages of 16 and 25. Um, so if you're 26, I'm sorry you're a husband. No. Um, I remember in seminary, there's a professor that wanted to get back into the pastorate, and he was in his 50s with a PhD. And he couldn't even get a church to interview him because he was in his 50s. And it's a, it's a thing out in America, in, in the churches today, they want you in your 30s with a PhD. If you're older than that, they don't want to really look at you. Um, it's hard for me sometimes. I'm only 34, but the average age of a church planter is mid to late 20s. And, and I'm 34 with three kids, and there's just a lot of work ahead of me here. And sometimes I feel like I missed the curve. Um, I started late in the game or something like that. And so I don't know what it is for you. You feel like the wave has kind of already passed, and it's because you're looking at your story 
through your eyes and only thinking about what's rational from a human perspective. And you see, the way we treat life is there's a trajectory. I, I, I'm born, and then, and then I, I kind of live, and then I die. And it's just you know, a big lob. It's a trajectory. And so we have a hard time when God steps in, but this is where God loves to use people. He loves to use the people that know it's God doing the work and not them. Their, their arrogance isn't matched up and, and tied into it. God takes the humble and he exalts them, right? He takes the downtrodden, a bunch of guys from Galilee and uses them. He likes to shame kind of the proud things of this world by getting involved and saying, I've got a plan, I've got a story, don't laugh at me, I can do this. And I'm going to use the people that really know it's me doing it, that's really, the, the people that are really going to depend on me, that, that it's going to build that with relationship. And so there's a, an amazing text, we won't go there, but with uh, Moses and Exodus, starting in Exodus chapter 3 there, and God goes to Moses, and now Moses has got a lot of arrogance, he's a prince, uh, it seems like he has a lot of arrogance, he's a prince in the uh, Pharaoh's court, and he has this heart for the oppressed Israelite people, right, uh, the Hebrew nation, and, uh, and he ends up being rash and working out his own agenda, and then he has to run. And so for 40 years, he's tending sheep in the desert. And then God shows up when he's 80, and in Moses' mind, the wave is, he can't even see the wave anymore. And so three times, God's telling him what to do. He says, I don't know if I'm your man. And God says, you know, uh, put your hand in your jacket. It comes out leprous. You know, he does these miracles. He says, you know, it'll be fine. I'm with you. It's not too big for me. And Moses says, oh, I, don't, I don't really know if I can do that. And God says, no, you're the guy. And then Moses says, I'm not good with, with my mouth. And God kind of flashes back and says, didn't I create the ear? And didn't I create the mouth? And didn't I? I'm over those things. Look to me. It's my story. You're the person I want to play this part. I got it. Don't laugh. Don't despair. And so God takes these people that, that feel like it's too late, that feel like the wave has already gone by, and God delights to use those people. God delights to use us. And so I guess the, the final analogy for me is, you know, Sarah laughs at God, and she feels like it's just too late. And she ends up having the kid, by the way the finish of the story, but it's kind of like uh, the fireworks, you know, you get those ones and it's, um, you know, they go up, they, they, they explode, they go up, they explode, they go up, they explode, you know, and it's kind of everything makes sense and it all feels right. And then every once in a while you get this one and you, you see it go way up and it kind of arcs and then it kind of like starts to sink and you're like, well, oh, it's a dud, right? That one's worthless. It didn't go off when it's supposed to. And then like, just as it starts to kind of sink down and you think it's a dud, the thing explodes, and I mean, you, you can feel the concussion, right, all the way on the 5 freeway from Disneyland over, you know, you feel the concussion, and it's like the beginning of the finale, it's, it's part of the finale, it's, it's this massive firework that just needed more time to get where it needed to be to go off, right, and so that's Sarah's life. It's lobbed up there, and it slows down, and it kind of sinks, and right about there, Sarah laughs at God. It's too late, God. You can't be significant. You can't use me. And right then, it explodes. She becomes the mother of God's people 
throughout the ages. It's amazing. And some of you are sitting there today and I don't know what you're thinking or what's going through your mind or what you keep telling yourself that makes you feel like it's too late. I hate, my personal thing is I hate high capacity people that check out early because as a church planner, as leaders in the churches, every church I've ever been a part of, I mean, we're desperate for leaders and high capacity people. And what drives me crazy is when a high capacity person checks out on life and and they've got all this experience and all this skill and all this wisdom and all this competence and it could make such a difference in the kingdom of God yet somewhere there's just this little thing in their mind and, and they're not turned on. And there's others of you that are creative and there's others of you that love so well and there's others of you that just have joy and, and you're not finding anywhere to just let it out because you think, it's just me. What can God do? It's already past time. I'm not important doesn't make sense. I can't see it. My firework is kind of sinking, and don't for a second think that God's not big enough. Don't for a second laugh at God. Don't for a second miss that He is the one who's got a story that He is working out, and even if you can't see it, He can still use you. It's not too late. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You for this morning. Um, it's encouraging, at least to me, uh, if there's only one here this morning, it's encouraging to me that you can use me in ways I can't imagine or that wouldn't even make sense. And my job is to somehow muster up the, the faith, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, the faith to believe that you're not finished with me, that you can still do great things or meaningful things through me, um, Father, it's encouraging for me to feel like I can be a part of what you're doing. And I just pray for all of us that we would look at our own wants, wishes, desires, our own story, our own agenda, and that it would lose its luster, that we wouldn't want to chase that. Rather, we'd want to drop it and, and run hard after you, and that we'd be hungry to be a part of what you're doing in Bend, in this church, in this world, in the people that we know. Father, we just pray that you'd use us. In Christ's name, amen.